listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, I just found out when I was doing my research, is a Scarlet Knight. Now, I say that because growing up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, I had so many friends who are Rutgers alum. In fact, one of my best friends and my drinking buddy, Carrie Steuben, is class of 86. And I was thinking, you know, besides being a soccer legend, my, my guest is a very, uh, very talented musician. So I'm thinking back in the day, he probably hit up the melody in New Brunswick a few times. And my guest is Alexi Lawless. How you doing, man? Hey, uh, yes, definitely. I spent many a night at the Melody and the Roxy and Gold Queens and Pete's and all the different places out there. We used to, you know, we, we played, you know, Fraternity Row in the bands that I was in and played shows out there. And then obviously being you know, the proximity to New York City, going down and playing like Kenny's Castaways and CBGB's and the Bitter End and these types of places. So all, 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 all I, had, I grew up in Detroit, uh, right outside of Detroit in the suburbs of uh, Detroit and Michigan. And I had never been to uh, Rutgers, let alone to New Jersey. So it was a eye-opening experience, to say the least. Well, you know, it's funny. It, it was such a hip area. And I, I went to a state school called Stockton, which was now it's Richard Stockton University. In fact, we had actually had a very good soccer team. And our coach, well, who became a coach, Tim Lenahan, went on to coach Northwestern for years. And, you know, we, we had friends who would go to Rutgers because Cherry Hill, there was a shitload of people who went to Rutgers. It was like Penn State or Rutgers. Yep. And it was just fun because we'd go up there and Stockton was small but the party scene in Rutgers is much better. And then you go to the Melody, and it was back in the... I'm, I graduated college in 86, so it was back in the Matt Pinfield days. And it's just the music was phenomenal. It was it was, it was was a cool time to, you know, to, to, to land in New Jersey and obviously at Rutgers. <laughs> I, you know, I went to a small little prep school in Michigan, and I, I landed in this, like I said, another world. Uh, you, nothing prepares you when you are from out of state. And to your point, Rutgers is the state university, and so I was like one of two percent that were from out of state. And so <laughs> it was a, a fish out of water for a while. But it, you know, it, it introduced me to some wonderful people, um, uh, an incredible area of the country that I just hadn't you know experienced before. A great institution, and from a soccer perspective, it was the highest level that I had ever played, and it changed my trajectory when it come, when it came to my soccer career, also. Now you were also you also played ice hockey there, right? Yep, I played hockey there too. So you, I mean, it's the law in Michigan; you got to play hockey. So, uh, <laughs> so I grew up playing hockey. I got to ask you. I, I talked to a guy, a buddy of mine, who played ball basketball at the University of Pennsylvania, and he said playing college athletics and going to school is really hard. I mean, because you know you're you have to study, you have to go to class, you have to you know travel. What is it like when you play two sports? Because you never got a break. It's not like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Alexi's going to play hoops, and then he's done. You played, probably went straight from soccer to hockey. So, I mean, how did you even get through college? Barely. Uh, so <laughs> I, I I arrived at the Banks of the Raritan uh, in the fall of 1988. Exit nine off the turnpike. My dad took me there. As I said, I'd never been there. He opened up the door, kicked my ass out, and said, good luck. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. But I, I got there in the fall of 88. I did not graduate until the summer of 2014. So the, I was on the 26-year plan. Um, I, I, my, I'll never forget my first semester. So uh, when, when, uh, when my dad called up uh, Rutgers University, he said, listen, I got this kid. He's a really good soccer player. He's an average student. And the coach said, well, 
here's the best I can do. I can invite you to preseason and I can get you into the agriculture school, Cook College over there. Now, I grew up in Michigan, but I sure as hell didn't grow up on a farm. But I, I would take anything. And my first semester there, I show up in um, beef and sheep production, okay? The final was like 36 pages long. Luckily, the, uh, the uh, professor took pity on me and was a soccer fan and called me up after a couple weeks and said, look, I know you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about here. Just stay in the back. Don't bust my balls. Uh, you know, just be a good, uh, you know, good soldier there and we'll find a way to get through. But I, I barely skated through just to be, be eligible. And I wanted to do all these other things. And obviously I was playing soccer. I would go and play hockey. I was doing all the music stuff and everything else. So my studies uh, were not necessarily a priority at the time. But, you know, education is wasted on the youth. When I went back uh, many, many years ago when I was, or many years later when I was in my 40s, it was, I, I appreciated it so much more. But it was the hardest thing also I ever did, but the, one of the most gratifying too. Now, you grew up in Michigan, and I, you said hockey's a passage. Yep. But so was football. So how did you end up in soccer? Did you play, I, heard, I think you didn't start playing soccer until you were like 11, right? When did you start playing hockey? Yeah, so, I mean, hockey, I grew up, uh, you know, we, we, we used to flood the, the, uh, the driveway and we used to go to the ponds and the lakes and do all that kind of stuff. So I had that real kind of traditional cultural northern upbringing when it came to hockey. Soccer was a little bit different. My, my dad's from, uh, from Greece. He's, uh, he's Greek. And so I grew up when I was really young going back and forth between Athens, Greece and uh, Detroit, Michigan. My, my dad was a professor and my mom was a writer. Um, they, they, to say that they had uh, aspirations and dreams and hopes that their first sport would be a professional, anything when it comes to sports, that would not be true. However, they were incredibly supportive, even though they had no real connection to uh, connection to sports. But, you know, I, I grew up, uh, as I said, oftentimes being over in Athens, Greece, as this American redheaded kid that didn't speak the language. And I would go down to the corner and kind of just sit on the side as that proverbial sandlot type of experience happens. And there it's soccer. Here it would have been you know, baseball or some or football or anything like that. And it just, one day they called me in and it was, it changed my life forever. And then I came back to the United States and I did everything that a lot of kids still do to this day. Mom and dad coaching and orange peels and juice boxes at halftime and all the travel teams and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it, I just gravitated towards soccer for a number of different reasons. One, I was good. And two, and this, this hasn't changed, uh, you know, since that first time I ever kicked the ball. I loved the fact that this was a sport that was being played all over the world. And, you know, you, you, you think globally but act locally. But I loved the fact that I could go out on my, on my sidewalk in front of my house in suburban Detroit, Michigan, and be juggling a ball. And there's a kid on the absolute opposite side of the world that I have very little in common with. Different cultures, different languages, all that kind of stuff. But this was this thread that binded us to, together and still to this day does. I just love that aspect of thinking about it in a global way as opposed to some of our sports, which are much more homogenous and obviously much more traditionally American. Now, when did you know that you were good? I mean, you know, everything's like, you know, some athletes, people, I thought I was good at basketball. I'm blind in one eye. I have no depth perception. I sucked at layups. But I mean, I just knew that. But when did you know that you were good? And did you ever sit there in, sit there and go, you know what, this is going to be my career? Did you ever think that, that you would become a, a star? So I knew I knew I was good from a young age, and you 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 gravitate to things that you are good at if you like them. Let's be honest. Uh, and I liked it; it kept me out of trouble, um, and it was something that I could have 
for myself. You know, it was nobody else's. So I, I, I love that. But I did not grow up thinking that I was going to be a professional soccer player or play in World Cups or be or just, you know, that that was going to be my living. I just enjoyed doing it. And I, but that was because it was relative to the time that I was growing up. I didn't have heroes. I didn't have leagues that I could follow, domestic leagues or anything uh, like that. So I always looked at it as, you know, when I got to Rutgers, if this is the best it gets, it got me to college. OK, and I will take that and th- say thank you very much. But. You know, nowadays the generation grows up and they have so many more pathways and so many more resources and advantages. It's all a, a wonderful thing. But I just didn't have that growing up when it came to soccer. My, my heroes were on my wall. I didn't have any soccer heroes. I had musicians and hockey players. Now, how did you gravitate towards Defender? Which is funny. I'm, I'm 57 or my 56, whatever I am. I remember when I played high. Uh, I played junior in junior in junior school. I played soccer, and we had halfback and we had fullback. We didn't have defender. We didn't have midfielder. How did you gravitate to defender? And when did that? Ter- Do you know why that term changed and when it changed? Yeah, I can tell you exactly uh, what happened. I got to Rutgers, um, and you know, as I said, my my dad drove me the 16 hours out to meet the coach, and he said, uh, "Do you play? Uh, uh, Do you play defense?" And I completely lied and said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so when I showed up for preseason, it was in the capacity of being a defender, and I never looked back. But, you know, you fake it till you make it. And I winged a lot of that. And a lot of it was, you know, intimidation. You know, I was this kid from, like I said, there were a lot of Jersey guys on that team as his, as his uh, Rutgers. You know, I had you know, huge red hair. I didn't say a word for, like, the first month, so I scared the crap out of everybody. And then I just kicked everything that moved and kind of just – made the position my own and they were going through to be fair it was a a transition type of year and so there were some opportunities there but yeah absolutely the defensive part of it uh came from uh uh, getting to Rutgers before that I was I just kind of freeformed and was attack and did whatever the hell I wanted on the field now how did you choose Rutgers was there other offers or did they offer you a scholarship or me because as you said a kid from Michigan coming to New Jersey like in my college Stockton we had a guy from Hong Kong we're like, how the, how the hell are you at Stockton? And he's told us how, well, his cousins went there who are from Hong Kong. And we're like, yeah, but how does someone at Stockton who has rich parents end up at a state school where it's $32 a credit? It just never made sense. I mean, how did you end up at Rutgers? Uh, it was the only place I got in. Uh, I, I wallpapered my, my room with rejection notices. And look, I had, I had done some good things from a soccer perspective, and I was kind of relying on that to help me get into places that I wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And, you know, as I said, it, it, it ultimately did help me get to Rutgers. I had the Rutgers application on the bottom of potential things that I was looking at. And the only reason that I had it was because I had seen a story in one of the soccer magazines at the time for for your younger listeners, magazines were things we used to read, and that was where we got a lot of our information. So, uh, you know, I had seen a, a story about the Rutgers soccer program, and so I said, hey, that's interesting. But like I said, I had never – I had no connection with New Jersey. Uh, I had never – I did certainly didn't grow up there, and I had never been to – I did everything wrong in terms of what how you're supposed to kind of narrow down your search and pick a college. Um, but, you know, one of those you know, soccer gods or whatever gods you have up there were smiling down upon me and made it made it uh, made it all right because it worked out all right. Now, so when you get there, when you get to Rutgers, you said that the program was in transition. But yep. then as you got there, it really got a lot better. Were you a big part of that? I mean, did people sit there and I mean, what made you guys gel where by the time you were a junior, you guys were a stellar, a stellar team? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, as I said, a, a, 
kind of a rebuilding moment, but that rebuilding process happened immediately. And they had a really good recruiting, recruiting class. And I wasn't necessarily even supposed to be part of that. And so I kind of fell into their, into their lap. And, you know, if it happens on your watch, you get credit. And certainly that program had never been to the heights that in our four years with that group that we had uh, of some really, really good players. And by the way, you know, I was, you know, big fish in a, in a small pond where I was in, in Michigan. And then I came to uh, New Jersey and in that New York metropolitan area, the wealth of talent. And so I had to really up my game. There were a lot of really good players and the competition that we were playing. And, and to your point, even local competition that we were, we were playing down there, Montclair state and uh, you know, go down to Philadelphia textile and just different, different uh, institutions that had really, really good soccer programs because of the wealth of talent uh, concentrated on that, in that East coast and particularly in that area. So I was surrounded by a, a bunch of really good players that, were young and were coming in and immediately took that program to a level that it hadn't been in the past. So your senior, I mean, your junior year, you become an All-American. So what does that mean to you? And what did you know that at that point when you became All-American that you would end up leaving college that, that year? Uh you know, so as as you start to get more accolades and you start to have more success, and this is done uh, at a prominent university in terms of scouting and, and people people's eyeballs, and we're playing against UCLA and we're playing against Virginia and the perennial elites of college soccer. Yeah, obviously you start to get noticed, and so you start to you know the wheels start to spin and you start to think about, hey, I could maybe do some things going forward. But still, at that point, it's all right, you know, maybe there's there's some fledgling leagues that are going on. There's indoor soccer. Maybe you try your luck uh, over at a, at a lower division team if you can get over to Europe and do that kind of stuff. But you started to think about possibly parlaying this success that you're having at the collegiate level uh, to a professional and obviously an international level. Because at that point, you know, in 1990, the U.S. men's national team went to the World Cup in Italy. And so I'm watching these players that are my, some of them are my, my contemporaries represent the U.S. at the World Cup. And then you start to think, hey, who knows, four years from now, it's going to be in the U.S. Could you be a part of that program going forward? So you start to think about it, but still, you know, I still, I, it wasn't, that's my goal. That's what I have to do. Now, what was your steps after you, you know, left college? What was your process to end up be becoming, you know, where you are now and yeah, so, your career was. Yeah. I mean, look, I, in 1992, in the, in the summer of 92, I played in the Olympics uh, for the U S because I had been seen collegially uh, starring. Then I got picked for the Olympic team and that was huge because it introduced me to the international game. It put me on the national stage and in front of the national coaching eyes out there. And I was able to parlay that along with a bunch of other players that were on that 92 Barcelona Olympic team into being on the World Cup team in 94. The reason why I'm talking to you today is, uh, and the why I talk to anybody every day with, with regards to you know my soccer past, is because of what happened in the summer of 1994. The U.S. hosted the Men's World Cup. It changed my life forever. I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. The opportunities that it provided for me uh, on and off the field after that were you know, consistent. And I, I, I thank my lucky stars that I was born in 1970 and it all worked out from a timing perspective where I was in my prime and I had that opportunity in 1994 in the summer of 1994. It not only changed my life, it changed soccer forever uh, in terms of how we view it in the United States and how we are viewed from outside too. Explain, I want to, I want to hear about both the Olympics and the World Cup. 
and explain the feeling. Like I talked to a lot of musicians and they talk like I was just talking to some guys, Martin Chambers from Pretenders, when he talked about playing at Live Aid. You know, how it was just this this global amazing thing. The Olympics and the World Cup must be even above that if you look at soccer compared to musician, you know, the music. And you've done you've done both and you've toured, but what what was the difference between the two, the Olympics and the World Cup, and how how did you react to them, and what was just the, the atmosphere? So I mean, so, so for example, you walk out in the opening ceremonies, and so in 1992 in Barcelona, for people that, uh, that maybe don't remember, that was the era of the Dream Team, you know, Jordan and, and all the different guys, and and so you're walking next to the Dream Team, and you, you know, you're, there's Jennifer Capriati and Courier and, and all these different incredible stars, and then you look up in the stands, and there's there's Mandela, and there's Fidel Castro, and there's this you know this incredible in the Tribune, there's all of these people that you saw on the news and you never thought you would be, you know, performing for them, I guess, I guess is what it comes down to. You know, the, the, the other part of it is, um, and to, to tie it to music, when we grow up and we see these things, what we subconsciously, uh, take in is the soundtrack to all of this. And I'll never forget walking out onto the field for the first time, uh, for this, for the world cup. And, you know, this was for a soccer player. This is the be all and end all. And this is it. And I've watched, you know, highlights, and I've seen all this stuff. But all of the things that I have watched have had a soundtrack to it. And I'll never forget walking on the field and being a little um, surprised and freaked out that there was no music. You didn't, all you heard was the crowd going on. There wasn't that, uh, you know, that, that, that symphony going on and the crescendos and all of that type of stuff that, that triggers us in, in, in a positive way and makes us, you know, put it elevate it to an even higher level and so that was that was a little surreal for me but you also have to be very very quick to remind yourself this is what you've been working for but this isn't the end game all right now you actually have to perform the reason why you are there is because somebody along the way believes you're good you have to believe in yourself that you're good and now you actually have to perform and when you do it at the highest level in front of billions of people you 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 provide opportunities for yourself uh, and some that you never, ever would have been uh, given had you not been able to do that. And so if you don't recognize that moment, it's one thing, it's one thing to recognize the moment, I guess. It's another thing to actually grab a hold with both hands and say, I'm not letting this go. This is a great opportunity that might not come along again and making the most of it. And sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail, but at least you recognize that moment and try to grasp on. And I was lucky enough that the ball went in the right direction enough times where it ultimately was a successful type of, uh, whether it was Olympics or uh, a World Cup endeavor, and I benefited from it. Now, the World Cup, how did the opponents look at America? Because, you know, you always sit there, and, and America, you know, people really didn't know it for soccer back then. I mean, they knew it, but not like, you know, hey, football, and, you know, everyone knew Brazil and Argentina and everyone, you know. What was it like? Did, did they talk shit to you? I mean, was it like, oh, yeah, did people not take you serious? Because you, you were a physical player, so it's not like you're just, and, and you had the, the beard and the look, yeah. you know, you look, you could have been in, you know, screaming trees, for Christ's sake. You know I mean? You had that look going. But what, how, how did other countries act towards America, and do you feel that you gained their respect personally and as a soccer team in that World Cup? I mean, this has been a decades-long uh, you know, striving for credibility and respect and attention for, for all of us, uh, individually and collectively as a sport. And seeing these opportunities and, and, and using them to our advantage. 
look, there were times, and there's still times, where we get patted on the head. As, and this is from a, a, a men's perspective, because our women are the greatest in the world, right? Yeah. But from the men's perspective, you know, we are also rans, and we are oftentimes not given the, uh, you know, the credibility and the respect that we would want, but that's something that you earn. That's something you earn over time. And so we looked at it as, hey, this is an opportunity for us to prove to the rest of the world, and let's be honest, prove to our country, which also looks at us kind of that way, because it's one of the few things when it comes to sports where we are not or haven't been number one is our, is our men's soccer team. Hey, let's show them what we're doing by the way that we go out there. To, to your point about you know the the way the way that I looked. I have always considered myself from the moment I started playing sports as a performer and as an entertainer. You say that sometimes, and people uh, get a a false sense of what you mean. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not committed. It doesn't mean that you're not competitive. But I always looked at it, looked at it in the way that you rehearse, right? You practice. You go on stage. You go on the field, right? You wear a costume. All right. You wear your uniform and then you perform in front of people. And I wanted to elicit a reaction. And I took all of my cues from music. Okay, so I, you know, I lived through the whole 80s glam thing and, you know, fake it till you make it and big and bombastic and all that kind of stuff. But what we didn't call it back then was your brand. Right. You were cultivating a brand and it was manufactured. I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew how it would play. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't comfortable or that it wasn't authentic. I was real comfortable in the in the in the character that i was playing and portraying but you know we we all play different characters at different times i was just playing one on that stage that is the world cup in front of a billion people and i knew what exactly what i was doing i knew how it would benefit me but like i said i was really comfortable in that in that costume that i was wearing and i knew how to play it but it doesn't work unless you you know from an acting perspective, I guess if we want to make this uh, work, you got to have the chops. And so when you get on the field, it doesn't matter what you look like, you can bring all the attention. But if you don't have the ability to play, then that's the missing puzzle. But when you put both of those together, you got something good. But I want to know about the respect factor. Like, were you feeling the respect as it was going on? You know, as you're sitting there playing against these other guys from other countries, you know, and you're sitting, and as I said, you're intimidating, and you're right, it was a brand, which before then, you know, you could have been an influencer, you could have been on TikTok with millions of hits back then, but did you feel that people were going, you know what, other countries are going, you know what, this this isn't the old America, it's just like when hockey, when we beat Russia, everyone went, wow, you know, they're, 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 they're someone to be reckoned with, did you feel that as the World Cup went on? Yes, I mean, from the, you know, the World Cup lasts about a month, a little over the month. So from the moment that the World Cup started, the way that we were perceived, as I said, internationally and domestically, to when that World Cup ended, it fundamentally changed. It changed. It, I mean, it was a battle for hearts and minds. And it was also a battle to get as many different people into that soccer tent as possible. And undeniable. It, it completely changed, as I said, the perspectives out there on what soccer is, but also what we were as a soccer playing nation. It wasn't as if we were saying we're the best in the world or anything like that, but there was a pride, and I felt pride in the fact that I was able to leave a good account of ourselves along with all of my teammates that helped the sport of soccer and helped give more value and, as I said, more respect to what we were doing as men's soccer players from the United States. Now, what does it do to you when we didn't make the last World Cup? 
as someone who's been in there and through the thing, I mean, does that just piss you off? Like, I'm an Eagles fan. And, you know, after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, then they started going down. And last year, they sucked. And right. for me, as a fan, I'm like, oh, that sucks. But for you, you were involved. You were involved in getting the recognition. How do you feel? Like, does it piss you off? Or do you sit there and go, well, we're rebuilding? How does it feel for you? It, it pisses me off, absolutely. I was, you know, I was physically... Uh, moved in a negative way. I was angry about it. I was sad about it. I was, um, you know, at times confused about it. And so, you, you know, you have your initial emotion and then you, you know, start to look at what's going on. My biggest sadness came from the fact that it was a wasted opportunity. We can't afford to waste opportunities. Yes, there are times where one step back enables you to go two steps forward. I, I get all that. But the fact is that you know, there's a lot of people still when it comes to the game of soccer that look at it askew and, and, and are looking for opportunities and ammunition to say we don't, we don't, we're not there. We don't know what we're doing. We're, we, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't good from a men's perspective. And this, unfortunately, was just another opportunity for people to say, yeah, we, we, we don't know what we're doing. And that, yes, in that moment, it was incredible failure. But the reality is that we have... It's night and day. You know, when I showed up in 1988 at Rutgers University, what the soccer landscape looked like back then relative to what it looks like in 2021, it is, I mean, it blows my mind. Now, we don't want to, you know, break our arm, patting ourselves on the back with how far we've come because there's still a lot of problems and still a lot of challenges. We've still got a long way to go. But we also have to, you know, know, uh, you know, take a little bit of pride in how far we have come both on and off the field in the leagues that we have, the culture that we have, the television, the media, the brands, all the different stuff that goes on uh, when it comes to this uh, the sport right now. And a lot of people, I still to this day say, you know what, that summer in 1994 changed me forever in terms of how, how I am, how I look at the world and the soccer person uh, that I am. And a lot of people came into that tent that hadn't been in the tent before. Now, after that summer, you ended up going to Italy to play. Mm-hmm. Now, what is it like being an American in Italy? And in, you know, because Italy soccer, you know, I mean, as I, I follow soccer. You know, I, 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 when I used to work at a restaurant in LA, I managed a restaurant, I follow Mexican soccer a lot because I sure. would get the, the, the uh, busboys and the kitchen guys who become Philadelphia Eagles fan, and I became a Cruz Azul fan because one guy liked them. And, uh, and it was cool when you're thinking, but they never like, uh, you know, but what was it like when you went to Italy to play? Because I'm sure they weren't, they were, I think, were you one of the first people to play in Italy? Yeah. American? So, I mean, it was, it was more type of, you know, breaking barriers and, and pioneering type of stuff. And I had never, I had never been, I had been to Italy, but I never certainly played there. And, and to your point, you know, Italy, especially back then when I was there, you know, it was a, just a fishbowl. Uh, and you are, you know, a very a big fish because you are this curiosity, the way you look, you're American, all that kind of stuff, it all played into it. And so to go from a country and culture where soccer isn't king to a country and culture where there's two things that happen on Sunday, you go to church and you go to the soccer games, right? And to live that on a daily basis in a community where you get up and people are looking at you, people act and react to you based on a score that happened that weekend, that's a, that's a really different type of lifestyle and living uh, and a huge change. And so you you very, very quickly grow up. I, I had a wonderful time. I was there for a couple of years. I learned the new language. I adjusted. I was playing against some of the best players in the world in what was arguably the, the top league in the world. So as a soccer player, I grew. But more importantly, like I said, you know, that being being well out of that comfort zone, it makes you grow up very, very fast. And you 
I, I, I became a better soccer player, but I also became a better person for it. Now, this whole time you're playing over there, were you hoping the MLS would start? Did you want to come back to America? I mean, you know, you're, as I said, Michigan and then, you know, uh, Rutgers and then the World Cup and the, uh, you know, the Olympics. So you're an American guy. You know, I mean, yeah. you're used to America. I mean, even though you went to Greece a lot when you were younger. Did you, were you hoping that the MLS would start? Or was that something that you said, I'm, I'll play in Europe if I have to. I'll play wherever. Just I'm getting paid. I'm doing what I love and life is good. Yeah, there was no question in my mind that if and when the league started, and keep in mind that you know it was contingent on the, having the 94 World Cup, part of that was that you were going to start a league. And they thought they were going to start it immediately after the 94 World Cup. It just wasn't ready. And so we had this two-year span where everybody kind of had to go different places. But it wasn't even a question. No matter what I was doing, no matter how well or how much money or, or the lifestyle that I was living, I was always coming back. I mean, this is... This is La Cosa Nostra, man. This is our thing, warts and all. And we had talked about it in the back of buses and in hotels and, you know, in airplanes about, hey, wouldn't it be great to have, you know, that proverbial league of your own? And we finally had it. But we also knew that we needed to be a part of it and we needed to come back and help start it. And I remain one of the proudest moments of my life was getting on that plane as great as, a, as an experience as it was in Italy coming back to the United States to help start Major League Soccer. There's not there's not a lot of times in your life where you get to be there from the beginning. And I remain immensely proud that my, I was and so many others came back in 96. And it was a leap of faith because we didn't know if it was going to go. And now we're 26 years in and the business is you know night and day about, of what it was. But to be there in 96 for the start of that, it was really important to me and to all of our group, especially that group, that, that we had seen in 94 uh, and a whole other group of, of foreign international players that weren't on the U.S. team but were on other teams that kind of started and said this is something that's going to last not not just well beyond our lifetimes, our, our careers, but well beyond our lifetimes. How did that league start? Like, you ended up on New England. Was there a draft? I mean, what happened? Or did they just say, okay, you know, like in, in school, okay, I got... I got Lawless. I got him. I got him. How how did how did you end up on that team? And you know, and you were a drawing card because people knew you. But how'd you end up in New England? And did you like New England? Yeah. So everybody that had any kind of leverage, and I certainly did, coming off of you know the World Cup and, and what I was, was able to kind of you know make their feelings known as to where they wanted to go. And then you were allocated out. There was a draft. I wasn't involved in that. So I was one of the players that was allocated because I wanted to go to Boston. I had had such a blast in Boston. Um, we had come there a bunch of times with the U.S. national team before. And the environment, um, the, the crowd, the, uh, the knowledgeable fan base that was there, uh, at that point, it was Foxborough Stadium that we were playing in. It had always been good to us. And I had a, always had a blast going out in Boston, you know, the bars and the, uh, you know, basically it was Guinness and, you know, mahogany that attracted me to, <laughs> to Boston. And I made, that's how I made my decision. And it was great. I had a blast. The first year I was there, I lived in, uh, in downtown in the Back Bay. I had a great place. Every place I went, I should have bought, but I didn't. But it, I had an awesome place in the Back Bay. And then the second year I went out and did like, you know, a, a Walden Woods type of thing, uh, you know, out in, the, out in the sticks in Weston, Massachusetts, out in the middle of the, the boondocks. It was, it was actually, I didn't find out until I actually bought the house there that it was a, a dry, it was a dry county and I had to, I had to drive to the, to the county line or whatever, or the, or the, or the uh, you know, the, the, the town line there in order to get, in order to get my Guinness. So uh, a small price to pay. 
Now, eventually, you know, you ended up in Kansas City, and then you retired. What was it like hanging up your cleats for the first time? Is that hard? Because this has been your life. This has given you all the opportunities you've had. And at that moment, I know you came back to play for LA, but what was your... What was going through your mind? Were you thinking, well, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna play music. I mean, what, what? When you retire at a, you're, it's a young age. What, do you, what do you think you're gonna do? I mean, everything's played out great for you, but what right. do you think at not in 1999 when you said I'm done? What did you think was gonna happen to you? I didn't know, but I knew that I was burnt out. I mean, I had, I had, you know, all of those opportunities that I talked about, I had taken advantage of all of them. I remember some of them, but it was. I had burned it at both ends for a number of years, both on and off the field. And I just knew that I was fried and there was no way that I could continue on. And, um, you know, I didn't know what the future held. And, you know, so I, I, I went into the coach's office and I said, listen, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And he was great and it was wonderful. And we, you know, we agreed to stop. We didn't call it a retirement. I think we called it a stepping away just to kind of keep our, you know, uh, a, a door open there. But, I want to do some other things too, and and look, a lot of times in these stories, there's a girl. Uh, I ended up chasing a girl across the uh, the country to Los Angeles. I ultimately, she became my wife. Uh, so that story ended up uh, a great, and that, that part of it. But it also, it gave me a you know, a, I didn't know it was going to be a year, but in that year that I that I retired. It was kind of like a sabbatical. I did some different things, and I, I, I got involved with television. I did a lot of television. I did a whole lot of music, uh, as we as we talked about. And then, you know, I uh, I wooed a woman that ultimately became uh, my wife and the mother of my children. So, how do they pull you back in? What happens with the galaxy? Did it sit there? Because it is LA, and you know, you're in. LA. I lived in LA for eighteen right. years, and so you know, everything's around, and it's just like it's LA. How did they get you to come back? Did you sit there and say, you know, there's an opportunity, and you probably thought. Once again, brand you in L.A. L.A. is, you know, commercials, stuff like that. You know, he's he's known. He has a look. How did they pull you back in? Yeah, I mean, look, I had a great time in Kansas City. And I remember I had gone from New England to New York, and then I got traded to Kansas City. I remember, like, the condolence calls when I got traded to Kansas City. But I had a blast, you know, in Kansas City. I was, you know, back in the Midwest. People were wonderful. Team wasn't so good. But eventually I ended up in Los Angeles, and uh, the coach of L.A. knew that I was living in L.A. and invited me out just to train. And look, so, you know, he was appealing to my ego. Hey, you look great. You know, you're still young, all that kind of stuff. You know, in his mind, he's saying, I can get this guy now, and probably for a whole lot less money than, than in the past. And, you know, he's got experience. He's still got something left in the legs. And so that that was it. You know, the, the, itch, the itch to come back was there. And whatever I needed to do in that in that time, I felt like I, I I felt like I could reintroduce soccer to my life and it wouldn't be, you know, a hindrance. And look, I'm not complaining about any of this stuff. This is these are all first world problems uh, to have. Absolutely. Compared to most people out there. But that that was ultimately the calculation that was going on and say, hey, I'm in town. Uh, I'm going to go train with uh, with the L.A. Galaxy, which is the team uh, here in Los Angeles. I started to show well. They were, you know, they said, hey, if you're thinking of coming back, we would love to have you. And that was probably all I needed at that point. So then how do you decide to retire again? And did you know it was the last time this time? Did you say, "Okay, you know what? I came back. I had fun. But now I'm getting older. I'm, you know, I'm probably tired because you, as you said, you're burning both ends for so long. And then you've just been playing and, and your body takes 
a, a beating and you guys are constantly on the field. It's not like you get that break in football or, you know, or baseball. You're just standing out there in left field. You, know, you guys are going back and forth. And, and the defender is a very, um, you know, physical position. I yep. mean, was your body just saying to you, okay, Alexi, that's it. You have to stop. I actually, I, I actually considered, con- keep, uh, you know, I, look, I wasn't the same player that I was, but I certainly could have kept playing. But I had always reminded myself, even from a young age, that um, if you see a jumping off point, uh, and I, I tell young young players come and ask me and, uh, for advice why, I have no idea, but the, the advice that I can give them is your career is probably not going to end the way that you want it. If you see a moment, uh, a, a jumping off point, think long and hard because it might not be there when you want it to be. And so I walked into an office, as many athletes do, and the coach looked at me and said, listen, you've been great, but we're going to go in a different direction. All right, is it, is it something I can do? Is it, is it money? No, it's not money. Is it my playing style? No, it's not your playing style. This is just what we're, what we're doing. And so I walked out of there thinking, all right, well, i got to go find another team. i got to go find another job. One door closes, literally, and another one opens in that the ownership of the L.A. Galaxy called me up and said, listen, um, you know, we're, we're looking to try to get some players or ex-players into the business world, and we have this opportunity for you. And in that moment, it just clicked. It was like, listen, I can, you know, I can eke this out for a few more years, but this type of opportunity doesn't come along often. And um, I felt like I could do it, and I felt like it would be something where I could make that jump and fall into something that might lead to other stuff because as important as a as a career can be it's still very finite and, and a small portion of your life and you better have other things in your life after that that excite you um and that you that, that you can do and so i recognized that this was a really really good opportunity to go into front offices and for the next five or six years i was involved in front offices for a number of different teams and i learned the business of a sport that i thought i knew everything about but i didn't know jack shit about what is it like being a general manager? I know you're a general manager. I mean, when you became a general manager, what what is the day-to-day of a general manager? Because we always see it like, you know, the Phillies have the owner, they have the general manager. You know, some teams, the owner, Dallas Cowboys, the owner is a general manager, you know, whatever. What is it like being a general manager? What are your day-to-day responsibilities? Right, right. So I was 33 years old at the time. Uh, I was very, very young. I was certainly inexperienced, and I was put in the position of being the president and general manager of these teams, which means you're the you're the head of these uh, these organizations and these businesses. Yes, you have bosses in the forms of ownership, or if you are part of a you know a bigger system, for example, the Los Angeles Galaxy um, are part of the Anschutz Entertainment Group. Okay, so you do have ultimately uh, you know some other some other bosses there. But my responsibility was the product on the field. You know, making sure that it is good as possible on the field and monetizing that product off the field. Okay. And those are very, two very, very different things. And I was exposed to a side of the business and to men and women that don't kick a ball, but in my estimation are as important and at times even more important than any of us that ever kicked the ball. And I just was given a crash course in business and, you know, the dynamics of a, of an, of an office place and, the similarities, but also the the differences and sometimes dramatic differences between a locker room sports setting and a office and a, and a business setting and trying to make sure that there's balance so that both sides recognize the other exist. Both sides have a respect for each other because as a player, you're pretty insulated from all of that. And so my my goal was to recognize that 
these men and women up there in the front office, they're doing a hell of a job. The players have to respect what's going on. And in the other way, make sure that the men and women in the front office have a respect and understanding for some of the challenges that the players have uh, going forward. And that's, you know, that's synergy, but that's, you know, that's also, but I learned a lot. I made plenty of mistakes. Ultimately, I, you know, I went through a bunch of different teams. I went to San Jose and that was a team that was relocating. So that type of dynamic was crazy to deal with. Then I went to New York and that team was rebranding and being sold to the Red Bulls. So that was a whole nother dynamic that I had to deal with. And then I came to Los Angeles and David Beckham and that hurricane of David Beckham was a whole nother situation. So three very distinct and different, but very challenging situations that, you know, I had some success, uh, other, uh, other failures. I made mistakes. I did some things uh, well, ultimately got fired as many people do when the product on the field wasn't good enough. The irony is the thing that I was least experienced at the business side of it was where I excelled, but the actual competitive side on the field and having that product be good uh, from an LA Galaxy perspective wasn't there. Now, what was your, what, how were you involved in the Beckham coming to LA? Were you an integral part of it? And did he know that, you know, going to a general manager who has been in the World Cup, who was a player, not someone who's a, you know, an accountant or something like that. Did that help get him to L.A.? Or what was that like? What was your part in getting him to L.A.? No, listen, the, the you know, my, my company that I worked for, the Anschutz Entertainment Group, they had fostered a relationship over the years doing camps with him in the hopes that it's someday, if the stars align, this could possibly happen. You know, we had talked a long, a long time about creating the first American super club, that, that club that, that Yankees or that Cowboys type of situation where that's a club that everybody knows as many people hate them as love them, but you never ignore them. And that it's the club that everybody thinks of first when they think of the league. And we wanted to make the galaxy that, so we needed a conduit. How do we, how do we, how do we do that? Well, you go out and not only sign one of the biggest soccer stars in the world, but one of the most famous people in the world. And you pay him a boatload of money, and that's you know that's that's the easy part, right? Is you pay him what he wants, and you bring him in, and comes in with that incredible power. And he did. He he fundamentally changed not just the galaxy and the way the galaxy is viewed, but the league in and of itself. And from then, everything kind of kicked on. But he also brought in, you know, that hurricane. I mean, he he sucks a lot of air. When I say he. It's not just David Beckham. He's speaking of a brand, by the way. It's the machine of David Beckham. And we were unprepared to deal with that type of global machine. And the balance was the biggest challenge that we had because you can't have a player that is ultimately bigger than the club. That's that's a really difficult dynamic. And so it took a number of years. And like I said, I got fired. Coaches got fired until they finally got it right. And that definitely was one step back in order to go two steps forward. And uh, a a process that the galaxy needed to go through, but you know there was a lot of collateral damage a- along the way. But I learned so much from that whole experience, and and it was fun, and I remain immensely proud that I was part of that that moment to help bring David Beckham to Major League Soccer, and then you know to make sure that we monetized that and used it to create that first Super Club, which I think we did. Now that you get done, you're you're, you're had all those soccer things. Is com- was commentating in your mind as your next step? Was it something that you said, you know, once you, well, you perform, so you know what it's like to be in front. And you've been in front. I mean, I always tell the people, you know, I have a performing background, and it's easy. Like, doing something like this is easy. You know, it's like you play in front of, in the World Cup, I mean, the Olympics, stadiums. So sitting there talking to a camera for you is just probably second nature. You've been up on stage playing guitar. So it's not, you know, it's not a big thing. Did you did you think comment, being a commentator was the 
I can't think of the word, right? It's not the right step, just the natural step. Did you think that was like, you said, okay, I can do this. I have a good personality. People know me. I'm going to get a job, no problem. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to get a job, no problem, but it was very, very quickly. I mean, I got fired in the fall, and by that December, I was actually on the set for ABC for the MLS Cup, uh, already working in television, and I never looked back. And I worked for ESPN for a number of years, and now I'm uh, with Fox now for a number of years. It, it was, it was, you know, it, it was comfortable. Uh, it was exactly what I wanted. And it encompassed all the different things that we talked about. And I could utilize all those different experiences that we talked about in a way to continue to perform um, and to continue to influence, uh, to continue to be a part of the game that I love uh, in, a, in a really unique type of way. And obviously, there is a physical aspect of it, but, you know, you're not relying on your legs uh, at that point. Um, so it just it just felt so so right and look i i still got a long way to go i still make plenty of mistakes and i'm still growing but i i am so fortunate to have found something that jacks me up and excites me as much and at times even more and at times i'm even more proud of some of the stuff that 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 i get to be involved with and do uh, from a television standpoint than the than the the performance look players after they retire they will chase that that high you will never, ever find it. There is nothing that is going to be the same type of high. Now, you can find a different type of high, and I've found that. And it might even be something that gets you even higher, all right? But you'll never find the, the equivalent of or, – or you'll never be able to re, repeat what happened as a player. That's, that's gone. But I'm so lucky because there's a lot of players that don't find that, and they are constantly searching, and a lot of them never find it. Now, we went through a pandemic, and there was games without – uh, crowds in the stadium. Yep. From a player's viewpoint, what would that be like going into a full stadium with no one there? I know you guys go in a zone when you're playing your game, but what? how do you think you would react the first time you went on and <laughs> there's nobody in the crowd and no noise? You'd probably go freaking crazy. It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> I mean, anyway, you slice it. Look, we're, we're making the best out of a bad situation, but it is fundamentally... A different game. It's a different game playing it, and it's a different game watching it. It's a different game coaching it. By the way, and you know, I was um, I watched um, uh, Stephen Piercy from Rat did a uh, stream uh, the other day, a live stream from the whiskey uh, up here in L.A. And it wasn't in front of anybody, so we were all watching at home. And so he would get to the end of a song, and in that moment where we normally associate the crowd going. There's dead silence. And even it was a little freaky for him. And you could tell that the stage banter and, and just the timing and the rhythm was a little bit off. And we saw the same thing from a sports perspective. Without, without that soundtrack and that, that carpet, that comforting carpet that is behind uh, when, we watch, when we watch sports, it's jarring. And it is, it is a different type of experience. So much so that, you know, there, there, there was this back and forth between us and ESPN. We at Fox and I you know, absolutely endorse this. We actually have injected artificial uh, crowd noise in, in, in a real kind of artistic and creative way. And it's a whole no, it's a whole new science, I guess, if you will, but an artistry in doing that. And other people say, no, I want, I, I want to be able to hear what the player is saying. All right. I get it. But that, 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 uh, it's really not that interesting. Ultimately what, 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 so what athletes are saying out there after you get, you know, a couple F bombs and screaming and yelling and stuff like that. I want that, 
that comfort food. I want that comfort sound that is going on, that crowd noise that is going on. And without it, like I said, it's raw, it's naked, it's stark, and it has to affect the actual performance on the field. We're seeing it right now, you know, over in Europe, some of these incredibly hallowed grounds where the crowd and the atmosphere and the ambiance is from a historical perspective, everything about that club and it's an identity of that club and it's gone. Poof, it's gone. So hopefully we're heading in the right direction here where we can get some of that back. And it's, you know, it's the same for music or any other communal type of situation where there is that give and take. And without it, you know, half of that is missing. Now we talk about music. I want to know how the hell, first of all, when did you start playing guitar? I mean, I can't think if it was high school or or college, I'm like, Christ, the guy was playing soccer and hockey. Most people don't have time to pick up, you know, start, you know, being a musician. How, how did you get into music? I mean, not, I mean, everyone loves music and, you know, everyone sure. wants to play music, but here you are, you're successful at one point. And it's like, was this just, did it start as just a hobby for you? So I like millions and millions of kids. I had piano lessons, Mrs. Van Heusen, I would uh, walk the two blocks down to Mrs. Van Heusen, cursing my mother the entire way, and then, you know, I would, you know, you know, you know, sit down with Mrs. Van Heusen, and she'd want me to do the scales, and I would play, I don't know, you know, a Van Halen jump or something like that, but it, you know, it introduced me to something that has been with me for my entire life, uh, and something that, I have taken as seriously as anything that I've ever done from a sports perspective. So I never looked at it as a hobby. I also recognize that when you are seeing in one, in one light, and in my case, it would be as an athlete, you are, it's very difficult to, for people to picture you doing anything else. And so from the music perspective, I recognize that just to be considered passable, all right, it had to be really good because they were automatically going to bring you down a couple notches because, and, and to be fair to, to people in that type of uh, perspective, Look, we are, our world is full of people that are, you know, on, you know, uh, just using a situation to, to live out a type of fantasy. And I, I, I get all I, I get all that. But like I said, I, you know, I've been writing and playing since I was a kid, every different type of band, every different type of venue, every different type of style. I my mom was a, uh, a singer and, um, you know, she had an acoustic guitar and she, you know, she brought out this classical guitar and, you know, taught me like a couple chords and I gave my love a cherry or something like that. I said, thanks mom. I'll take it from here and took that guitar and went on. And it's something that is, is a huge, huge part of my life. It continues to be, it doesn't matter, you know, how, how popular or how successful it ultimately is. If it's in you, it's in you. And it's something that I know I'm a better soccer player for having music in my life. And the music that I do absolutely is influenced. When I go back and look at music that I've put out over the years, it is almost it's a diary for me uh, in terms of the, the content and just I can picture myself where I was when we wrote these songs and it's exposed me to so many. I mean, even at an early age, when you are involved in music, you know, there's that jock group that you have and then there's that music group. I was able to, to go back and forth between these two cliques and groups right there, which exposed me to so many more people that if I had just stayed in the sports group or just stayed in the music group, I never would have met. I listened to the latest album, and first of all, how do you find a band to play? And are you a Jim Blossoms fan at all? Because sure. I, I, yeah. I felt I, I had a little, I felt a little 
Jim Blossom's influence in some of the songs. Yep. You know, and, and you know, Robin's wonderful. It's funny, I, 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 he was on the show and I went to see him perform and he kept giving tambourines away. And I'm like, dude, like, how many tambourines after the show? I'm like, how many tambourines are you going to give away? And he goes, <laughs> they bought me the wrong tambourines. So I said, screw it. I started giving them away. And I'm thinking, he's making all these people's night. Like, he's tossing a tambourine. But I, I, when I listened to your album, there was, I felt a little influence. Is, who are some of your influences in your music that you recognize and say, and it's a compliment. Yeah, so I'm I am in a, what a, what is a constant search for the perfect pop song, right? So I grew up in the '70s and '80s, and that's where I was formed. So I started with all the classics, or my classics at least, which would be your. Uh, I'll never forget the first. I can tell you exactly where I was when the needle hit the groove, uh, and a whole lot of love came on. Uh, I can tell you, you know, you know where I was when I first heard Van Halen. So it was Kiss Van Halen, but then it was. Then it was Bee Gees and Hall and & Oates and Air Supply and Pat. I've never. I remember my first concert ever was Pat Benatar, Crimes of Passion at the uh, at the Pine Knob Music Theater, and I'll never forget walking in there and going, "Holy mother of God!" But then, you know, that whole '80s scene and every metal band that you can possibly or hair band, whatever you want to call it. I mean, sitting there and seeing Def Leppard in the round for the Hysteria tour, or seeing the Slippery When Wet uh, tour, but then going and, and seeing. Uh, you know, uh, into the '90s, you would get into Lemonheads and uh, you know Third Eye Blind and all this power pop type of stuff that was going on, and then Mellencamp. Uh, so there's the acoustic part and the petty stuff and and all of that. But then, uh, you know, um, you know uh, Duran Duran and uh, Nick Kershaw and all these different influences. So that's where it comes. I, I'm I'm a melody guy, so. I have to ultimately be able to take a song and break it down to uh, an acoustic guitar and a voice uh, for me. And, and that, that to me, you know, so, so when people are screaming, uh, it doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I can recognize, you know, the talent that it takes to, to make that type of music, but I want melody and especially I want metal, melody in my vocals. All right. I'm not a big, I, I play guitar, but you know, there's very, very rarely am I moved by a piece of guitar work. Okay, it's much more in terms of a rhythm guitar work. Like so, Eddie Van Halen, wonderful guitarist, but for me, the the brilliance and the magic is the rhythm guitar work that he did, as opposed to the soloing. I get what the soloing is, uh, and and and, and, it, and it, it was innovative and blew my mind. But that's what that's not what made me fall in love with Eddie Van Halen relative to to Van Halen. It's so funny you said about when you remember. I was just thinking about what you're remembering certain times you heard certain songs, and I was thinking the other day. I still remember at my parents' house in Cherry Hill in the den, and I had one of those TX. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember the, the what was a remember the stereo that everything was connected yep. like it had you know. And I remember WMMR in Philadelphia, and the first time I heard "Is She Really Going Out with Him" by Joe Jackson, I went, "Oh my God." And I became a huge Joe Jackson fan. But it's remember, it's funny, but we do remember that stuff. The first time you hear a song, I mean, what song the first time you heard really put a stamp on you? Oh, let's see. Um, I remember, let's see. So what, what did I bring home? I mean, look, I uh, my, my favorite group uh, from a, a harder rock type of uh, position would be, uh, would be Rat. I mean, I, I, when I first heard the band Rat, um, 
and, and keep in mind, I was right knee-deep in the MTV era, so the visual part of music for me was as important as the, uh, the audio part, right? So I would associate it with a, with a video that was going on. But I, I remember going up to Harmony House Records and buying the, uh, the Rat album because I had seen uh, a video on MTV and bringing it back and putting the needle down and hearing Wanted Man, uh, which starts off uh, out of the cellar, which... Uh, has round and round and all that kind of stuff on. I'll, I'll never forget uh, that type of stuff. You know, hearing "Modern Love" from uh, David Bowie. Th- uh, those types of uh, those types of moments. And I can tell you, you know, where you know where I was. I'll, I'll never forget her walking into um, walking into Cobo Hall and seeing shows, seeing like Cinderella opening up for Bon Jovi or Bon Jovi opening up for Rat before the whole slippery when wet uh, thing uh, uh, thing happened. I remember. Yeah, I mean, there's God, there's so many so many moments. Rick Springfield. I mean, I am a huge huge Rick Springfield fan. I just love that pop rock type of stuff. Great. It makes me it he, makes me so happy. He's, he's, I, I think that he is such a. I mean, he's a very famous musician, but I just think he's so at times underappreciated for his body of work so when you look at like rick springfield or brian adams or Loverboy or these the, yes they're rock bands but there's those pop sensibilities you know that a lot of times it was you know the production um you know i, I remember i remember hearing um lost in love from air supply for the first time and you mentioned uh, you know uh, you know taping stuff like at that point if we didn't have the actual single or the album or the cassette we were up there with our you know, two fingers getting ready here. It's coming on. And, and you would hope that the DJ kind of prefaced it and said, Hey, it's coming. Maybe it's coming around this commercial break or something like that. And that was everything to be able to record that. Cause now I got it. You know, we didn't have the internet back then. I know we sound old uh, talking about that, but it was, it was a different time. And, and, you know, now I guess we're back to, to singles because albums don't really happen anymore uh, when it comes to what's going on nowadays. See, my one thing I love is I have Amazon Music Unlimited. Everyone has Amazon Prime. I pay the yep. extra. That's why I get to listen to your music and I get to listen to everybody's music because I go and I say, Alexa, play this and I get to hear it. Yep. Um, have you met any of your music idols from because of your soccer career, I know you opened for, I believe you opened for Hootie and the Blowfish, sure. which must yeah. have been great. But have you met people and have people come to you who loves soccer and went, I want to meet that guy. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the amount of people that are into soccer is, is crazy in the music world. And look, the, the international aspect of it, I think lends itself to it. So when, you know, I mean, early days when Ian Asbury and I are talking about soccer, Ian Asbury from the cult, you know, we're talking about soccer and, you know, all he wants to talk about is, is, you know, different players and different teams and all that kind of stuff. And all I want to do is say, you know, on, on Chow Baby, when you did this, and I'm like, it's, it's amazing. I actually, we actually did years and years ago, he was nice enough to come out to an acoustic show I did. And he, he came up and we did Edie Chow Baby, which is, which was just a wonderful, wonderful moment. What a, what a, what a, a, an incredible singer, but also a wonderful, wonderful guy. So there's, I mean, you just go through it and there's so many different people that are, uh, that are involved in soccer. And, you know, there's a, there's an element of, you don't want to meet your idols and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I've done shows now with, with the guys from rat and they're, they're all really, really, uh, cool. And it's, and it's been fun. And then, you know, to go on tour with someone like, like Hootie and to see how professional they are and how much fun they have and to see how they, 
they play live and, you know, for them to give us the stage to start it out and to have to go out there and to prove it people that have no idea sometimes just who I, who I am. And if they do know who I am, it's the soccer player. And, you know, there's the, the folded arms out there and, you know, we're a much more pop rock type of band than, uh, than Hootie is. And you got to win them over. That to me is, is wonderful and a challenge to be able to, uh, able to do all, all of those different things. So along the way, it's been, it's been really cool to have this music part of my life and it's weaved in and out at different times at different, at different levels. And it's introduced me to a lot of different things and I continue to write and to record and to perform perform when we were when we when we could perform uh going forward and i love to do it for all three people including you and maybe my mom that actually have listened to it it's it's a cool thing it's i would do it no matter what and the fact that anybody out there can uh, can access it right now and when people talk to me about the music it's a it's a cool thing and i'm just trying i'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here i'm just trying to get that perfect pop rock song so someone like like Butch Walker or something like that. You know, I, I, I think it's just an incredible musician and a wonderful pop music producer, by the way, and a one, you know, an incredible writer or Matt Nathanson uh, or, or you know, these type of people that I, that I look up to from a, from a, uh, you know, a, a music standpoint. It's just fun. It's fun to see them. And when you get to actually meet them, it's cool that whether they're into soccer or not, it's cool to actually talk to them. Two more quick questions. Sure. One, what, can you, looking back, what has been the biggest highlight for you of your soccer career? Is there anything you can pinpoint? Uh, a particular moment, uh, you know. So, we, you know, like, like I said, the '94 World Cup forever changed me, and that moment when we beat Colombia in the Rose Bowl in front of a hundred thousand people, and what it meant was that we were going to continue on in the tournament, and we were really concerned about embarrassing ourselves uh, and not living up to you know, just the excitement and the hype um, and kind of crashing back to reality. And so having beaten Colombia, which was one of the favorites actually in the tournament, that was that moment when, you know, I, I you mentioned the, uh, the 80 hockey team. That was that moment for us where we would run, we were running around with the American flags because we knew we had done something special, something that many, many years from now we would look back and still remember and have incredible pride. So that, and, you know, and do it in that iconic venue of the Rose Bowl in front of so many people. And there's still people that talk to me about uh, about that game for a number of different reasons. But yeah, that was a that was a pretty special moment. And what do you see the future of U.S. men's soccer in the next few years? Are we going to see another World Cup? Because you know, I used to love when I lived in L.A. The bars would get packed. I used to live in yep. Burbank, and we walked down to Gordon Beers, and it would just be packed. And everyone, you know, even people who couldn't give a crap about soccer. We're so into it. And it was just, and we used to go to this place called Fantasia, pool hall. It would be packed. They were all walking distance. And it was great. And when they weren't in it the last time, I was pissed. Even though I moved back to New Jersey, I'm like, man, because I have friends who, you know, love soccer. And I was like, oh, you know, I can take the train into Center City, Philly, and watch it with them. And it'd be great. And But then they weren't there. What do you see the future in the next few years of men's soccer? We know women's soccer is great. Sure. But men's sure. soccer. So look, I mean, from a women's perspective, this summer they'll be back at the Olympics. They will be the favorites to win, and that's what they seem to do. And it's a it's a wonderful thing for soccer fans to be able to put all of their focus and energy into a team that is the best in the world in our women's. When it when it comes to the men, I mean, it's it's interesting where we are right now because off of that failure of not qualifying for the last World Cup, I'm hard pressed to find a moment in time when we've been more 
positive and bullish about this crop of players that we have. They're playing in some incredible places at the highest levels around the world. So I remain incredibly optimistic about the way that this is going to go forward. I think that this team will qualify for the next World Cup. Next World Cup, for people that don't know, is going to be actually next year in 2022 in Qatar. And while the World Cup usually happens in the summer, this one, because of the heat in Qatar, they've moved to November, December of 2022. And that'll be interesting in and of itself to have a World Cup happening at a very different time than we're normally used to. But ultimately, I think people are still going to go to the bars, and I am confident that they will be going to the bars to cheer the whole tournament, but also to cheer the men's team, which will have qualified. And when that happens, I think they're going to see a really, really good crop of talent here of young, talented players that kind of want to set things right and have a chip on their shoulder and say, all right, that was that last generation. This is our time, and we want to do some things uh, that are different. And we want to earn that trust back that maybe we've lost over the last couple of years. Well, that's awesome. I hope so, because it's fun. And I want to take that train into Center City, Philadelphia, and go to the Irish pub with my friend oh, Jamie yeah. McCarthy, who's a Rutgers grad who played soccer at our high school and was very good, and drink a Guinness. Anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. People, uh, Twitter, you're at Alexi Lawless. That Alexi Lawless, uh, 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 Instagram, Alexi underscore Lawless, and uh, my State of the Union podcast comes out every week. I continue to work for Fox, and uh, if there's people kicking a ball on Fox, usually I'm screaming and yelling about it. So I, uh, And I appreciate uh, anybody checking it out, and I appreciate everybody out there that does support soccer as much or a little as you can because it's a wonderful sport. Obviously, it's changed my life, and I think it's going to continue to grow and be a huge part of not just the sports culture but of American culture going forward. So people follow Alexi follow soccer. He's very active on Twitter and he talks back. So if you ask him something, he may ask back. He got right back to me. Follow Bring me on it. Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find eight hundred over 845 episodes. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.